Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Praise the Lord. Already getting so emotional this morning. <laughs> uh, man, we're going to go to the book of Jude and uh, look at this one another wonderful lesson, Hold Fast. Lesson number five. Lord willing, next week we'll finish the book of Jude, and then after that we have evangelist Mike Robinette coming. He should be able to uh, be here, Lord willing, and begin a series here in Sunday School. Looking forward to that. All right, have you ever been bit by a chihuahua? (laughs) I have. (laughs) And it hurts. (laughs) I reached down to pet a little chihuahua thinking it was a nice little dog. It was at the home of someone I loved, um, (laughs) used to love. (laughs) But but that little dog bit me right there, drew blood, and... um, Rest in peace, little Chihuahua. But uh, <laughs> but that's um, that's what the book of Jude is. It's a tiny book with a big bite. <laughs> it's a little Chihuahua book, but man, oh man, oh man, there is so much packed into this little book of Jude. It's a challenge. The whole purpose of it is a challenge for one thing, and that is to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. That was the pure purpose of it. It's the challenge for a Christian, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. This week, uh, unfortunately, seems like it happens so much, but I heard about another historically Christian organization yielding to the world's philosophies. Over 100 years old, Eerdmans Publishing in Michigan, which admittedly hasn't always been the most Bible-centered, but at least they have had a historically evangelical position throughout their history. But they decided that they were going to go ahead and advertise their, this time, their pride-related books. And uh, this announcement went viral on Twitter. They took it down (laughs) uh, because there was so much controversy, but then they put it back up. And this time with a whole uh, new string of tweets defending their position. And this is where it gets bothersome, really, more than even just the fact they did that, although that's bothersome enough. But their position that they took, they supposedly wanted to take a neutral position on this issue. That grieved me. And here, but here's what, how they worded this neutral position. Here's what they said. We do not think it is for us as a pub- publisher to define doctrine for the church. Our role is to publish books, representing both settled and experimental positions that serve the church in its ongoing deliberations. So Eerdmans say they're not taking a side, but instead we're giving a platform to all legitimate voices. By the way, just real quick, they, they may think it's not their duty to define doctrine, but it is their duty, as Jude says, to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That's every Christian's duty. So it is their duty to earnestly contend for what's already been written in the scripture and not change it. Every believer has that job. 
But they go on, don't worry. They assure the traditionalists, Eerdmans has continued and will continue to publish books by and for people who have not come to this conclusion. But there is one thing they tagged on the end of this. Listen to this. There's one voice that the publisher will no longer allow and support. Here's what they said. Eerdmans does not publish books that deny the existence or ignore the voices of the LGBTQ people, propagate false teaching about discredited harmful therapies, or in general condemn, revile LGBTQ people. Too much of that has been done over time and we want no part in continuing it. Translation, we're going to have an open debate about this issue as Christians, but the only ones who can't speak are the Bible thumpers. <laughs> That's really what they're saying. The deception in, those, in this statement, the deception that they're trying to take a neutral position, the deception is just so unbelievable. Just imagine future young believers. They come to Christ and they hear about this publishing company. Oh, there's a book there. They get one of their books and they think they're reading a Christian book. And this is why Jude had to be so straightforward in this letter about the apostates. By the way, let's look at the definition of an apostate. Let's remind ourselves. An apostate is a person who has professed to accept the truth and trust the Savior, but then they turn from the faith which was once delivered to the saints. That's an easy way to think of it. It's a person who never was really saved at the beginning, but they put on a front, there's a show there, and they leave the faith. And most often, they take people with them. And that's what I want to really think about today. As we go through this portion of Jude today, I want us to consider and think about the victims of the apostate people. The apostate teachers who might come in, creep in unawares, as it says in the book of Jude, they creep in and take people. And yes, like a, and like a cancer in, in, in a body. And there's people who they have, and I, I will just say personally, and you probably do too, we have personal friends and we have personal loved ones who are victims of influential apostates. Multiple different false teachers who brought in harmful teaching that sounded interesting, but turned out to be a cancer. And I'm, I'm thinking too, as I think back, I don't have any proof of this, but I'm just thinking, I bet you Jude had friends who left the church also. I bet you he had new believers he might have had children uh, or children of families he knew who had walked away from the faith. And Jude, in his heart, is saying, you know, I've had enough. Too many children, too many young believers are at stake. And so God gives him this letter to write. He tells him what to write. And in today's section, we're going to see in Jude chapter, or Jude here, he's going to give five warning signs. He begins with five warning signs that you might be dealing with with an apostate. Five warning signs that you might be talking to an apostate, either in a church or you might be reading something from an apostate. Five warning signs. Kind of, I was thinking it's kind of like Jeff Foxworthy's you know, signs you might be a redneck. <laughs> That's the, or a, recently, the more recent one is signs of a psychopath. You know, you, you eat your pizza, pizza crust first. That's a sign of a psychopath. Or you, or you, or you pour your milk and first and then there's cereal into the bowl. They say, anyway. Well, these are serious, okay? These are serious. Signs or warning signs that you might be reading something from an apostate. Signs that you might be talking to an apostate. So here's what we're watching out for. Verse 12. 
These are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about with winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Now as we go through this, again, there's, it's just kind of a, just a litany of, of, of him just pounding away at what's going on and what these believers, or these, excuse me, these apostates are like. It looks like we lost our, our screen again. Okay, so I apologize. We tried to get a new computer, did everything we could, so uh, we're going to have to figure something else out. Five warning signs. Number one, what we see in verse 12. Spots in your love feasts, he calls them. These apostates are spots in your love feasts of charity, or your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. In other words, there he's saying there are like stains at your love feasts. Love feasts were a part of normal church back then. The early church, they a typical church service, they would get together, they would have a time of worship. There would be a time of teaching the word, opening the word of God and teaching and preaching. Then after that, they often would have the Lord's Supper, the communion. And then after that, they would have a potluck <laughs> or a love feast, a feast of charity. And this was a way for people that were just from all walks of life, from all levels of life, poor, rich, anything. They would come together and eat together afterwards. And therefore, you would have people being able to, that often didn't have hardly any food that week. They would come and be able to eat with brothers and sisters. They would unite each other. It would be such a sweet time of fellowship and unity. It's amazing what happens when you eat together. And they started, to, the problem was though, it started to get abused. These love feasts started to be abused. There were people coming, they were just gorging themselves. This is all, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about this. They were gorging themselves. There were people coming drunk, getting drunk. Paul said that they came together, they were worse than, than they were when they came. You come to these love feasts and you're worse than be, rather than better. And there were divisions and abuses and so the love feast kind of faded. But Jude is saying, watch out for these false teachers, these apostates, because they'll come into your church and they'll be like stains on your love feasts. They would stain and they would ruin the love and the unity of the church. It's like a coffee stain. Everybody knows if you wear a nice bright white shirt, you're gonna get coffee on it. It's like, you know, I knew that was gonna happen. But and even it's a small stain, it's a little stain. But what do we all say? Well, I, I have to change. I can't just wear that around. That's, that ruins the whole shirt. Why does a little stain ruin a beautiful white shirt? There's so much other uh, good material there. Well, because it takes all the attention. Those little stains take all the attention and makes that shirt useless. The apostates, sinful actions, and their poisonous doctrine was like a little spot, a little stain that took all the attention and drew, drew people to them. And it says that they would eat without fear. They would just take and do all this stuff and the stuff that they were doing without any fear at all. They live wicked lives. They come into the church and they cause division. They convince others to join them. And they do it all without any fear of God whatsoever. That's what this is saying. They're callous to the holiness and the sacredness of being in church. To them, it was just another social outing. It's not another social outing when we come to church. It's not. This is a sacred place. This is a sacred thing that we do together. The Greek word for spots also has a connection 
to rocks under the surface of the water. And some translations put it that way. But either way, it's the same point. The apostates are sneaky and they are damaging to the church. And that's what the point that he's trying to get across here. So watch out for people who excuse obvious sin and lack a healthy fear of God. Jude says another sign that you might be talking to an apostate is they are like clouds without water, carried with the wind. What he's saying is it's like a cloud that appears, it's going to bring rain. You know, especially back then in an agrarian society, rain is so, so desperately important. We need the rain to come. Right now we need rain to come too. But you see a cloud, it's coming, and they would get so excited, but then that cloud would not produce anything, and it would just blow, blow by. And that's what Judah's saying. These people, these apostates, they are empty. They have nothing of real value. They look good on the outside. They look like they might have something, but they, their words, the things that they say, the things they do mean nothing. Sometimes my wife will show me Instagram posts of people we know who are into New Age Eastern religions. And they try to be philosophers with their quotes and, and uh, they're similar to some of these that I found here. Here's, here's some from Eastern philosopher. This is from a person named uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. Here's what she said. Once the realization is accepted that even between the closest human beings, infinite distances continue to exist, a wonderful living side by side can grow up. If they succeed in loving the distance between them, which makes it possible to see the other hole against the sky. Do you have any idea what that said? <laughs> I was lost in the first part. But th this is what I'm saying. Here's another one more. This is from Lao Tzu. He said, practice emptiness to the extreme. Keep stillness whole. Myriad things act in concert. I therefore watch their return. All things flourish and each returns to its root. Return to the root is called quietude. Quietude is called the way of life. Way of life is called constant. Acting without knowledge, this constant can be harmful. Understanding this constant is called receptivity, which is impartial. Impartiality is kingship. Kingship is heaven. Heaven is Tao. Though you lose the body, you do not die. I, I'm sorry, folks, but here's, here's what I was reading those things. I was trying to imagine... Imagine trying to follow someone that's saying that or saying these things. Now, I know a lot of people do, and a lot of people think they might be getting something, but it's just a cloud without any rain. It's really nonsense. If I go to a group once a week and the guru is talking this way, I would never know if I learned something or if I was just too dumb <laughs> to know what was happening. Whatever it is, it's clouds without rain, and this is a fantastic, Jude is giving a fantastic description of these kinds of philosophies. In Jude's day, the Gnostics taught that the spirit and the body are separated. And what happens in the one doesn't happen in the other. And it has no effect on the other. So, sounds nice. You can do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. It sounds wonderful, but it's just a big fluffy cloud without any valuable water. There's no life transformation in that whatsoever. It's pretty much do what you want. And how is that any different than what the world is selling? It's just a cloud without any water. It's so different with the doctrines of the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The gospel is what saves people. 
It saves the rich and the poor. It gathers all the nations that we just talked about from all over the world. It's the same message to every culture and every tribe and every nation. It's what transforms the gang members and the politicians. It's what changes family trees forever. It has real value. It has something real in it. It's not some cloud without rain. It's the real deal. You know, in John chapter six, we see an interesting story of Jesus. He's preaching and his statements were difficult. Some people were having a struggle accepting them. And in John 6.66, it says, many left and stopped following Jesus. But Jesus then turned to his disciples and said, will you leave also? And what, what happened? Peter said, Master, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's how I feel. Where are we going to go if we leave? If we leave the church, where are we going to go? Who has the words of eternal life? Everybody else just has clouds out there without rain. This is a cloud with real rain. And I just want to just say, if you're a young person or anybody of any age, if you've been thinking about leaving, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Don't leave because it's hard. Don't leave because Jesus said something hard. Don't, believe just, don't, don't leave just because it's something you have, you're struggling with. This is where the real stuff is. My wife and I have to remind ourselves often, the hard choice is probably the right choice. The hard choice is probably the right choice. Then Jude, the next calls them trees whose fruit withereth without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Judah's saying these apostates are like trees in late autumn, late fall. They're dry, they're leafless, they're fruitless. But not only that, they're twice dead. Why are they twice dead? Well, he's saying because they have no root at all. It's, these, he's just talking about a truth that's just been ripped up. They're, so in other words, they're rootless and fruitless. The roots are not pulling from any life-giving water. And again, they have nothing of real sus- substance to offer to anybody. I wonder if Jude was thinking about how Jesus was talking about the barren fig tree in Luke chapter 13. Then these apostates, verse 13, are like raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, verse 13. He calls them raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Now, I'm no wave expert, but I have tried to surf twice. And proudly, I got up on the board for three quarters of a second. (laughs) But people who actually surf and do a good job of it say that there's a difference between a formed wave and a storm wave. A big difference. Formed wave is nice, has a nice little curl to it. You can see it coming, it rises, has a, it lets out nicely. Good for riding. A storm wave is another story. Makes a lot of noise, makes a lot of movement, but here's what's happening under the surface is just stirring up all kinds of muck and nastiness. And then when the storm waves go back out, all you have left on the shore is foam and, and, and just that nasty stuff it brings onto the shore. And that's, that's kind of what Jude is saying here. When the apostates come in and they're done, they're like a big storm. They make a big stink in the church. And all they leave when they're done is like this mess, this mess of shame behind. 
You know, perhaps Jude was thinking of Isaiah chapter 57, verses 20 and 21. Let me read that to you. The great prophet Isaiah said this, listen. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. See, the people, these apostates and those who have false teaching, who want to change what the word of God says, they may talk about peace and love. They may say, love is love. Let us love what we want to love. But in the end, there is no peace. It's just a troubled sea and a bunch of foam left on the sand. And so that's why we warn people. That's why we have to lovingly, with with tears in our eyes and a genuine heart of love in our, deep in our hearts, say to people, uh, we disagree. We, we have to stick with what the word of God says. Verse 13 also, lastly, he compares an apostate to wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. A wandering star is a reference to what we now call falling stars. Perhaps it's a comet streaking across the sky. You know, back then, in Jude's day, stars were very useful in navigation. But a wandering star or a falling star is of no value to the navigator. (laughs) And if a navigator were to try to follow a falling star, it would be cool for a moment, but he would just end up in darkness. There would be nothing. What a reminder for them and then for us too about the slick flashiness of many of the false prophets of the day. They look good on the outside. They seem like they got their moment, but they're just a wandering star. They're a falling star. And if you follow a shooting star, you'll end up where they're going, as it says here, the blackness of darkness forever. This is a real reference to hell. And I just want to just remind all of us here, it's not a small matter to deny who Jesus is. It's not a small matter to go against scripture. It's not a small matter to refuse the offer of salvation that Jesus gives through him and through him alone. So God has already made it very clear here that God will deal with these apostates. And that's what Jude explains next, verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. (laughs) A little explanation is important here. Enoch was a man who was talked about in Genesis, he's seventh from Adam, seventh generation from Adam. It is also talked about in the book of Hebrews. He was a man, the Bible tells us, that walked with God. Enoch, what a great man. At some point in Enoch's life, God gave him this prophecy about future judgment of ungodly men. Perhaps originally when he gave it, he was really, he in his mind was focused on the flood that was going to come soon after him. But now we realize and we see that he was also talking about a future judgment that would come. Now this prophecy that Enoch gives is not recorded in scripture anywhere, but scholars tell us that this prophecy was written in an apocryphal book called the Book of Enoch, which is not inspired scripture, the book itself. 
The, the ancient uh, historian Tertullian tells us that the book of Enoch's prophecies were preserved by Noah's ark, by Noah in the ark, and that they continued and were read until the times of the apostles. So here's the question some might ask. Well, is it okay for Jude to quote the Apocrypha? Well, let's remind ourselves. The Apostle Paul also quoted non-biblical sources on at least three different occasions in Acts 17, 1 Corinthians 15, and in Titus chapter 1. Now, he, there, he wasn't proclaiming a new truth and saying this is, uh, this is an inspired piece of literature, but he was supporting already an established biblical pr- principle. He's, he's bringing this in and saying this is the principle that God has given us, and this outside source does support it. Jude, or Jude, excuse me, his quoting of the book of Enoch doesn't mean that the whole book of Enoch is inspired, but it does mean that his prophecy was true because uh, Jude quotes it as true. Paul quoted a pagan poet. When he quoted that pagan poet in the book of Acts, he wasn't saying that the entire work of the prophet was inspired. He was just saying this is a true statement. And also when it says here that he would come, the Lord would come with ten thousands. I just want to remind us that, that this is just an idiomatic way of saying an unlimited number. Just an idiom. And then the saints. Who, Jesus, or the Lord's going to come with saints. Here, it could, could be referring to the angels or believers or both. But it's talking about the end when Jesus returns to the earth. When Jesus is going to come and he's going to claim victory over all things on this earth. And then it says in verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Uh, Did you notice the redundancy in that verse? And as we talked about earlier, Jude loves the word ungodly. And this is how God saw these apostates. So, So Jude says, even Enoch long ago long, long ago, seventh from Adam, told us that ungodly people, and that is these apostates, would someday come and then they would, they would be judged by God. The word ungodly means irreverent. It means wicked. It means it's a person who has no fear of God, a person who has no care for the truth. and They don't, they don't give any credence to the Lord truly in their life. They are ungodlike. Here are a few other things to notice about these verses real quick. I want to just mention about this, this judgment. Jesus himself, it says, is going to be the judge. I, J- himself, the Lord will come. Jesus, he's not going to leave this judgment to somebody else. He, the Savior of the world, is the man who is going to be the judge on that last day. And it will be, it says, upon all. The judgment upon all. And every, all of the ungodly, it says will be convinced in verse 15. He will cut judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly that they are of all their ungodly deeds. Convinced is a perfect word to use here. And some translations don't use it, but I like that the King James does. Convinced. In other words, the word means in Hebrew proved to be wrong. They will finally stand before a living God. They will finally stand before Jesus and they will be speechless because they will be fully convinced, yes, you're right. I did, I did what you said and I have nothing to say. What will they be convinced about? It says here that their deeds were hard or harsh, violent, rough, fierce. 
And in their words that were spoken against him, their judge, the things they said about Jesus, the way they twisted the scriptures, the way they brought people with them, the way they got, had so many victims of their apostasy, Jesus is going to deal with all of that as the righteous judge. Sometimes we just need a sober reminder that this whole thing is coming to an end someday. It's not our job to judge. It's our job to contend earnestly for the faith. It's God's job to judge. I did a funeral yesterday, and the family, a few days ahead of time, they sat in my office, and we were, the one gal was just saying, I'm, I'm mad at God right now. And because their family member had died, her sister had died of cancer. And I, you know, and I understand that deep heart grief that she was going through. And she was saying, why does he allow the you know, evil people to stay alive and he would take my sister? And I tried to explain man's free will and the choices people make. But most importantly, I wanted to remind her that there is, Jesus has promised that there is coming a day when he is going to deal with all of the evil people and all of the evil sin that has taken place on this world. There is a judgment coming on all, as it says here in verse 15, all the ungodly. God will make it right in the end. And it's the same with the apostates. God's going to do it. Again, we contend for the faith. He judges the world. We don't take vengeance. We don't get unspiritual in our fighting. We keep a smile on our face and love people while we earnestly contend. And next week, we're gonna talk about the best things that we can do. That's how Jude finishes the book. And so we'll talk about that, things we can do as believers. But just in case he missed any characteristics of these apostates, again, it's a litany of words about these apostates. He brings four final charges against him in verse 16. Here they are, verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Again, these are the signs that you might be dealing with an apostate. Certainly, these signs in this verse are very clear signs that, is a, that a person is out of touch with the Lord. Murmurers, one who discontentedly talks to others. Complainers, one who blames fate and doesn't like their lot in life. Talks about whines and complains about their life or their lot in life. You know, people, these are people who he, he says are gonna be there and they're gonna be in your church, they're gonna be around you, they're gonna be discontent. They're gonna be murmurers. Murmur, 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 murmur. That's where that word comes from, just the sound that it makes. And complainers, they'll whisper, they'll say things, they're just complaining. They don't like where they are in life. They can't ever really find a good thing to say about their family. They, don't, they can't find a good thing to say about the church. They can't find a good thing to say about their job or their life. They can't find a good thing to say at all. And when a person is out of touch with God, he or she is bound to be complaining about something. When a person is out of touch with God, they're bound to be complaining about something. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Listen to this. You know the sort of people alluded to here. Nothing ever satisfies them. They're discontented even with the gospel. The bread of heaven must be cut into three pieces and served on dainty napkins or else they cannot eat it. And very soon their soul hates even this light bread. There's no way by which a Christian man can serve God so as to please them. They will pick holes in every preacher's coat. And if the great high priest himself were here, 
they would find fault with the color of the stones of his breastplate. (laughs) You cannot, we cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit, be overflowing with the fruit of love, joy, peace, all of that, and then be a murmurer and complainer at the same time. You just can't. If you think about it, to complain is really an insult to God. He's allowed something to happen. He's brought things into your life. He's given you certain things, and to complain about any of it really would be an insult. In my observation, I will say, just as this applies to apostates, this may be the starting issue for some of the apostates. They start to get discontent with life, and they they want something new or exciting some new teaching that really jazzes them. So they try a different way of looking at the scriptures, a different way of looking at Jesus, and they hear, read a new book, that, ooh, that's cool, that's great. Watch out. Watch out for those who are discontent and who are always looking for something new. And then there's the sign of walking after the flesh, he says. Uh, There are people who are self, where self and pleasure are king and queen of their life. When you boil down their religion, Uh, or their truth, it's all self-driven. It's all about self. And this is why Christ is so different. Jesus came and said, I want you to die to self. Die to self. That's a different way of looking at it. And so many other religions and the way people talk is all about self, self self-centered. And lastly, he said flatterers. They use their great swelling words to get people on their side. Especially they want influential people on their side. They talk about themselves a lot. Except when they see it's an advantage to talk up somebody else that really could give them an advantage. Again, it's all about bolstering self. They're smooth operators. And Jude is saying, I see them. I see what's going on. And the Holy Spirit sees it and God sees it. And these are all little warning signs that you might be dealing with that. Human nature hasn't changed in 2,000 years, has it? The same thing they dealt with then, we have to be careful about now. And just as I end here, I just want to say, just like back then, there is a serious danger for good people to be drawn away by apostates. Just imagine what would happen to our church or a church or an individual who started to think like Eerdman's publishing, who started to say, you know what, I'm just going to take a a neutral position on this whole stuff. And I'm I'm, I'm just going to let all of it come in. After looking at this passage, we see that if we go down that road, we see that it would make our lives and our churches loveless, directionless, fruitless, joyless, meaningless, and godless. That's what our church would be like. That's what any church would be like eventually. So as God's people and people who love the word of God, and I'm so thankful for this church and you people who love the word of God, we need to be very watchful for apostates and continue to hold fast. So thankful for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Jude. That is. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.